The Boarding Schools Expo takes the time and stress out of finding the right school to meet your family's needs. By bringing schools to major centres where they're all under the one roof, the Boarding School Expo gives your family the chance to discuss your educational needs directly with representatives of the school. In 2022, they're launching Boarding Expo 365, a virtual expo reaching families across Australia. Whether you're up in the Kimberley, flying choppers east of Normanton, or making Bree on King Island, Boarding Expo 365 will showcase schools right from your kitchen table. It's truly destination boarding from wherever you call home. Head to their website, boardingexpo.com.au, to discover your boarding school options today. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Willeen Station is not your typical cattle station. And it's not so much Willeen itself that's different, but the way in which it's managed. Within a couple of months of taking over management of Walleen, David began implementing a plan to completely destock the station. It was a move he believed was critical to ensure the long-term sustainability of the station. Over the past 15 years, David has implemented a number of management techniques which have drawn both praise and criticism, been featured on two episodes of the television show Australian Story, and resulted in a book. In part one of my chat with David, he takes us along the journey as to how and why he made these decisions. So my childhood, so I started off, but my my parents were managing Dororo Station just out of Carnarvon, so I was there for a year. And then we moved to Murchison uh, Settlement, which is the only show without a town in Australia. Interesting fact. Uh, We were there for five years or so, and then we went to Shark Bay, which is not very far away from here on the coast. And then we moved to Willem when I was 10. And what sort of kid was I? I don't know. Sort of awkward. Um, well, not much has changed. Not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> not particularly. I think outwardly confident, but not very confident on the inside, I guess. Certainly when I went to boarding school, that was the case. Um, I don't know. I haven't got, yeah. much, I haven't got many other kids to... That I've been that I can compare them to. Yeah. So, did, were you around many other kids growing up before you went well, to boarding Bay, school? We were certainly just Murchison. No, um, bit of school there at Murchison, and then um, Shark Bay. Yep, there was you know little school there, but then back to Willane. No, it's pretty. Wasn't many other kids around. I find it 
Oh, I found it very interesting reading the book. It is very interesting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice plug, nice sold, plug. Sold all good bookshops. So, yeah, so Dave's got a book, uh, The Woolene Way, and it's a great blend of story and I suppose like like a story side of things and an, and an information, like a blend of it. So it's not like a hard textbook where you're just learning, 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 and it's not just like some story, you know, some rural romance. It's It's not that interesting, no. No. <laughs> well, I mean, but it, it's got the good blend. But you you speak about your in like the early chapters of the book about going to They're boarding the only school. You've read. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm like the worst podcaster ever. I listen to true crime podcasts, and they like will read like three books on one case and put out like a case weekly. And I'm like, how are you guys smashing through these books? I like get to t- page two, and I'm like, oh, it's time for a nap. Not your book. This is all books in general. <laughs> but no, I am. I am a quarter of the way through. Uh, but in the early chapters, as you so delightfully announced to all our listeners, the only chapters I've read so far, I did. I did the cheat thing. I just watched the Australian story. Oh, yeah. You know, when you're it's at school in, and they're like, there. when at school and they're like, oh, we're writing an essay on Romeo and Juliet, and you're supposed to read the book, but then you just go watch the Baz Luhrmann film instead. You're like, yeah, yeah, I can write an essay on this now. I was a guy that read the book. People would come to me and say. That was the only thing I was very good at at school, was reading books. Well, see, other kids would come to me and be like, what happened in this book? I, I read it in a couple of days. Oh, I actually, re- I did actually read all the books in school. I used to like be a mad oh. reader and love like the MS Readathon and it's just in my adult years that mm. special. Anyway, back to the parts yeah. of the book that I have read. Um, you, you describe it as a child going to boarding school, this sort of social anxiety that you had. Uh, which really resonated with me, but you know, um, like you didn't know how to open the door into the dining hall or on your first day of school, was it you just didn't really go to any classes because you didn't know where they were? So you just wandered the halls? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't actually, I don't think it was social anxiety because socially I was really boisterous and really annoying probably for, for a lot of the kids and Again, definitely not much has changed. Definitely all the teachers. Um, but yeah, there was all these, um, Oh, I've forgotten what I called the chapter of the book. Uh, irrational fears. Yes, that's that, right. Yeah. That I just, you know, coming from, and I, when I was, when I was writing the book, I remember being really anxious about things, but I couldn't really remember why, but I could remember where I was on the school grounds when I was anxious sometimes. And, um, I thought, what was that about? And then the more I thought about it, the more all these irrational fears that I had at the time came back to me. And I was afraid of doing almost everything that you needed to do in order to, you know, get, a, get around, uh, you know, physically or to buy the stuff that you needed. You know, just didn't the ha- library. The library, yeah. I just didn't know how to do any of that stuff, which I guess is not that surprising. But I was terrified of asking anybody how to do it. So I just developed these ridiculously irrational fears, and probably the probably the worst one was the dining room door because. I didn't know what the signal was for opening the door to go into the dining room. There would be like 300 kids lining up, well, only 100 lined up at a time, but they'd all line up to, uh, to go into the dining room. And then, and then some secret signal that I didn't know about would be given. And then they, and then they'd open the door and they'd all fall in. But I couldn't figure out what that signal was. So I just, I was terrified of being at the front of the line because I didn't know. I didn't know what the signal was. It's a signal was because normally the doors are locked, 
and I didn't know what the signal was for actually opening doors. And it wasn't only, it was only until, I don't know, I was, I reckon I was probably year 11 or 12 before I figured out that if you were right at the front of the line, you could hear the click when they unlocked the door. So that was obviously the signal for going in, but I didn't know what the signal, and, and I, try as I might, I couldn't figure out what the signal was. So I would never be at the front of the line. So I just, I just hang back awkwardly pretending that I was, sometimes I just like walk past the diner and go back to school. Pretending that like I had some business back at school, which I didn't have, uh, just so that I wouldn't couldn't be at the front of the line. And I didn't want to be in the first three or four people in the line, just in case you know one of them did have business and they you know they got sort of called away to do something else. And I just yeah, I was happy you know being five or six back. That was fine, but the, the, nothing could convince me to be the first one to line up at the dining room. But yeah, that was probably an extreme example. There's heaps of things like you know I wouldn't buy. I wouldn't catch a bus because I didn't. I never knew what the fare was, so I didn't know how to get much to give them to get to wherever I wanted to go. So I would just never catch the bus. The library confused me immensely. I actually joined the Claremont Library down the road, um, so that just so that I could study libraries to figure out how how you know where to find the book that you actually wanted to get out. Um, so it went to pretty ridiculous lengths to, and for like some of those, the library one carried on into university years. So Which is ironic now that you have a book in a library. I probably wouldn't be able to find it in a library though, but I'd be, I'd be, I'd be happy to ask now. I've got, uh, I've got asking down pat, I think. I'm sure those experiences probably can resonate with a lot of our listeners. That dining, uh, dining room door one, uh, makes me think of, whether I've either been overseas or in Australia and at a new type of intersection where maybe there's like a meeting or you just, when you're first in line at the lights and you're not going straight, but you're turning and, but it just seems new and weird. And you're like, Oh my God, I don't want to be the first car. Like where am I going to drive into oncoming traffic or am I going to be in the right lane? I definitely felt that a lot at intersections and I'll try and hang back and be like, someone's call in front of me <laughs> for the love of God. Just pull over. Yeah. <laughs> like, can I have a big flag on my car that says, I'm not from here, so I need supervision. That's what your hazard lights are for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I find it very interesting, though, and I wanted to start off our conversation sort of uh, covering that story because while as a child perhaps that was something uh, that affected you and influenced your actions and behaviours, as an adult you seem to have grown into a very confident uh, I know you said like socially you were you were outspoken and, and boisterous and whatnot, but as an adult I don't – well, not that I know you that well, but it doesn't seem like that's something that's still – it seems like you've, you've outgrown that and then it's almost the opposite. Like you're very happy to ask the questions and – Yeah. Not not only did I outgrow it, like I – like I found a real – like when you when you get over those irrational fears and you do stuff and you figure it out, like it's really – Oh, I found it really, uh, really encouraging. Empowering. Empowering. Yeah. Maybe like, like it, it, you know, it really gives, like getting over your fears is like a really, well, empowering, uh, sort of thing. So then I sort of embarked on, you know, trying to figure out what those, I, I, I didn't do it consciously necessarily, but I would, but I would, especially when I was traveling overseas, that was a really good, opportunity to do that because no one knew me so um you could uh you can you could pretend like you're the sort of person that always catched the bus and and if, and if everybody looked at you like you were weird because you did it wrong 
didn't really matter because you're in a different country and it was unlikely to get back to the people that knew you. <laughs> so, so like I found it really, um, really like quite good fun, I guess, to actually seek out those things that I was afraid of and try and try and get over them. Yeah. And then, you know, recognize that eventually so sort of you figured out that nobody really cares what you're doing anywhere near as much as what you do. You know, you, you, you feel like, you know, you feel like you're, uh, um, you look, you look stupid or something, but really nobody else thinks that. So, you know, actively going out and, uh, trying to break down those sort of barriers that those mental barriers that I had, I actually found quite fun in the end. And now, you know, uh, well, I still do find it fun, I guess, if I can find things that I'm, um, you know, a bit reticent, reticent about doing, then I'll try and actually do them. I think we'll find throughout this episode and for anybody that has listened to you before or seen you on TV or hopefully read the book or will shortly read the book after this episode, I think this I, this concept of overcoming your irrational fears and at such a young age, um, you know, because sometimes people don't really get on top of this until later on in life, I'm sure that's played a big role in you being able to do what you've done so far and the, the journey you've gone on because – it's not been an easy one and it still isn't, but being able to kind of, yeah, challenge your thoughts, I imagine has played a big part of that and, and have the, like, have that confidence. Yeah. It's probably, it's probably then another thing and pr- probably quite cl- closely linked is, um, you know, going to different cultures, going to, to different parts of the world where they just do things completely, completely, almost completely differently and, you know, having a good look at, whether that works for them and then, and then realizing that it does work for them and you think, well, why do we do the stuff that we do back at home? Why is our culture the way it is? Because it obviously, I mean, these, the, you know, this different culture is showing that it doesn't have to be like that. Um, you know, really trying to break down that cultural stuff to, um, to its basic building blocks and then, and, and then, and then figuring out what those building blocks are, like what what do we actually need? What what are we actually looking for? And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's you know, you know, recovering rangelands or whether it's you know, um, well, that's probably the that's the one that's the one that's bringing to mind. Uh, you know, breaking it down, like what 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 do we what do we actually need, and what do we need to get there? You know, breaking those things down, and then figuring out. From that, whether our current practices are actually getting us to where where we want to go, you know, is the is the other part of it. So there's the there's the not being afraid, I guess, to do stuff new and asking those questions, and then there's also the breaking it down to to try and figure out what is what is really necessary. So that I think that's a great segue into what I'd like to talk about now, and that's the work you're doing on Waleen Station. So Waleen was purchased by your father in, was it the 80s? Or the 89. Eight, yeah, in the 80s. Good thing I didn't say I was halfway through 70s. I was like, no, that's definitely a bit He, he came pushing here it. in the 70s. Yeah, see, I knew. I read the book. Mm. I know these things. Um, the beginning of the book. And at some point in time, uh, in the not so distant past, you were given the opportunity or afforded the opportunity to take over. Um, but you have chosen a very 
different style of management than historically for Willene and and what's been done in the region or the southern rangelands of Western Australia. So I wanted – I suppose um, – Maybe you can tell us a little bit about Walleen and the, and the region. And then, um, I'd like to, to get to what was the catalyst for you having such a different approach rather than business as usual, you know, taking, taking on, you know, the business from your father and just continuing on as, mm. as many of us do with the way things have always been done. The, the credit has to go to my parents because they, you know, they, um, they certainly wanted to do, they, like most pastoralists, uh, uh, you know, they want to look after the country. They love this landscape and they live here because they love the country and they really wanted to look after it as best they could. They certainly didn't have the understanding in order to actually do that, but they were looking for it. Um, so, um, yeah, and that's part of the reason that, you know, mum and dad started up the tourism business in Moline back in 93. I mean, it crashed at wool prices, the fact they just bought a station, didn't have any money, certainly uh, contributed to that. But they kept the, the, the tourism on because, as dad used to say, every person that stays in a house is, a, is another cow that we don't have to run. So, you know, they were definitely that way inclined. Um, and then I studied environmental management a little bit until they kicked me out for not knowing how the library system worked, probably. Uh, no, that's not why they kicked me out. Um, so I was sort of, in terms of the ecology, I could understand, um, you know, all the, not all, but a lot of the problems that we had out here. And, and, you know, running a station was obviously a huge amount of work. From my experience, you didn't make any money and into the bargain, you weren't doing the landscape any favors. Um, but then we had a couple of chaps coming through the district, uh, Ken Tinley and Hugh Pringle, um, who are quite well-renowned, uh, world-renowned landscape ecologists. And so they um, you know, spent a fair bit of time with us and other people in the Murchison district and um, you know, really highlighted uh, some of the things that were really going wrong in the landscape, um, mainly to do with the fact that you know, our water wasn't staying on our property anymore and it was all disappearing and, you know, the, probably the loss of biodiversity came a bit later. But, you know, they really highlighted some of those problems, which didn't make taking over the station any more attractive. And at that point, I certainly wasn't keen on taking over the station. Um, but then we they took us over to a property north of Alice Springs, Woodgreen, owned by the Purvis family. And, you know, that was similar country, but they were running it very differently and they had, you know, that was a pretty dry, pretty dry time. And, um, you know, had big fat cows and heaps of grass. Um, and, and like I said, similar, similar sort of country. And it just sort of gave us, gave me a, a, an idea. And we went over a few, few other pastors and, and I think we were all pretty blown away with, 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 uh, how, how, how close that vision could be to what happened, could happen back here. And so, you know, I never wanted to be a pastoralist until we went to Woodgreen, and I've never wanted to be a pastoralist, anything other than a pastoralist since, since, since I sort of left there. So that was definitely the catalyst. And then sort of came back and started trying different things and, um, you know, trying to find a way through to something better, something like 
what the Purvis family had achieved over 30, 40 years at Woodgreen. Can you just uh, build upon, you just said when Hugh Pringle and, I feel terrible, I've already forgotten the other chap's name. Kent Dinley. Yes, sorry, Kent. Um, he's a name that I've heard so many times over the past five or six years. So that one is easy. I feel like I know him, even though I don't. Um, but you said they, one of the things they told you is that like the water wasn't staying on Moline. What does that actually mean? Like, um, is someone stealing the water? Is it just not raining? Like, what is, yeah, I mean, mean, it's, it's to do with how much vegetation, you know, how much ground cover you've got on your, on your property. Um, so, I mean, any pastoralist will know if you've had a really bad season and, you know, there's no feed around and you get a big dump of rain, all that rain's going to run off. Whereas if you've had a good season and there's heaps of feed around, heaps of plants around, and then you have more rain, that rain is probably going to stay, it's going to stay on your property because, because there's so many more plants to slow that water down as it moves through the landscape. So, so for, for the vast majority, on Moline and you know the southern ranges in general, um, you know we've 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 denuded the landscape of that vegetation, um, and now the water just runs off really quickly. And the faster the water runs, the more energy it has, and the more energy the water has, the more it starts to dig into the soil, which creates erosion, um, which essentially makes the water run even faster which gives it even more energy, which makes it dig into the soil even more. So once that erosion process, you know, starts up, uh, you get your little gully erosion heading upstream, it can be quite difficult to stop. And, you know, a lot of the creeks that are around here at the moment, um, we just thought that they were natural occurrences, but a lot of them are not. A lot of them, you know, are simply the end result of, of, of a lot of erosion, um, and you eventually you end up with a creek, and you can see that on, you know, old roads and things. You know, you put a road in a in a, in a in a place where it diverts the water, and it will become a creek um, eventually. And quite often, pastoralists will move the road, you know, forty meters over and build a new road, and then that will become a creek as well. <laughs> so I have a bit of a special talent of making up analogies of things in agriculture for lay people to understand and I've just had one pop into my head from what you're explaining because I'm just thinking if anyone listening you know perhaps has never been out in the rangelands or isn't familiar with you know what ground cover is in the erosion cycle this um, okay so let's imagine you've got you're on your front lawn and you've got your driveway and you and your lawn next to each other and we'll pretend that they're flat for now if you put the hose on your lawn the water is going to like run, but because there's all that grass, it's going to kind of go slowly through the lawn. If you put it on the driveway, it's just going to run and just keep because there's nothing to kind of slow it down. So that's in that little analogy I came up with for your ground cover or no ground cover. But because a driveway cement, you're probably not going to get the erosion factor. So you could do it on your kitchen table. If you had something that you can scratch, something that's flat, I mean, you could do it on the kitchen table, but you'd end up with a scratch. I was like, don't scratch your kitchen table unless you own it because someone's going to write us and be like, my husband did this or my child did this. If if you tip over your glass of water and it spills out over your table, then it'll spill out pretty evenly. If you put a big scratch at a diagonal, the, the way that the water's coming out of the glass, the water's going to follow the scratch. Yeah. And, and the scratch is your road, essentially, in a flat landscape. Yeah. So, yeah. That's my own analogy. 
There we go. But Look it's also us. it's also not flat. So you, you, say, yeah, in your little got- ha- in your house analogy, you'd probably you'd probably more compare it to the roof. So because you've got the roof and then you've got the gutter. The gutter is the erosion going through, and then the roof is the is the landscape with no plants on it. Imagine if you I don't know grew turf on your roof. Um, you know how much less water would get into the gutter, I guess, and or and how long it would take to to get in there. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So that's just my little thing. Whenever I'm hearing things, I'm like, okay, would somebody listening in Melbourne today or somewhere else in London would they have what would they are they picking up what we're putting down? Especially because this is an audio context, not a visual. I mean, medium. Sorry, an audio, an audio medium, not a visual one. I'm like, would they get it? So why are you making so many hand signals? Huh? I know, he's shaking my hands around. Well, because I knew you were going to say that, so people now know that I'm shaking my hands and gesturing. Can you give us a little bit of context about, I mean, it's been covered briefly in some of our other episodes, but I suppose the other thing is not everybody listens to every episode we have, so this might be the first one or the only one they listen to. Um, Which would be a mistake. Fantastic, all of them. Oh, look at you. Someone's trying to get brownie points. Um, Don't ask any hard questions. Let <laughs> <laughs> that block a Toblerone go, like Toblerone. So traditionally, I suppose I'll just put in my two cents and then I'll let you respond to it because I've, I've only started to shift my thought process in the last couple of weeks. Um, so traditionally the southern rangelands, if you think about it in the history of of Australia was still a relatively young country and people came here and settled it and started farming the land and this part of the world or the country they were doing sheep, grazing sheep. Uh, but it's very, very different to the country that people came from, um, in Europe. So there was such, it's been a huge learning curve over and a lot of mistakes have been made and a lot of damage has been done. Uh, but I'd like to think that for a good chunk of it, people, like you, you don't know what you don't know at the time and they're learning about a very new landscape, a very old and fragile uh, landscape. And the thing I hadn't really thought of, I'm sure uh, I know it's, it's come up in discussions with other people that maybe, you know, like wool was booming and wool and to have a sheep station was like a sign of prestige and it was a big, you know, it was like they, some people called them gold mines. Um, but it wasn't. So I just uh, yeah. briefly interrupting. We've got all the profit loss statements for. Were for, you making money for, up for here? Well, no. If you put in like uh, what you know all the assets and think what the Willine business was worth uh, back in nineteen twenty one or whatever it was. Yeah. Um. You know, if you put that into the Reserve Bank of Australia, like what money was worth then compared to what it's worth now, Willine was worth about one hundred fifteen million dollars. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Money. So there you go. I thought you were going to like argue then. I was like, no. dang it. I'm only two minutes in. I've already been proved wrong. <laughs> um, 115 million. Wow. So or in today's dollars. But the other thing I had never really considered until quite recently is that, um, w- people were coming out of, you know, wars and, uh, depressions and whatever. And, and also like, they were bloody adventurous to come out in the middle of nowhere and have a crack at what they were doing. And so I kind of not, and not necessarily, it's like not a full pardon, but you, I, I guess it provides a bit of context that why people were trying to have a crack and make a living and, and build wealth. Um, which, you know, as, as you know, so I just, that's something that's I've only been considering recently. Cause for a long time I was like, Oh, bloody sheep have just flogged the Southern rangelands and rah, rah. And I didn't really think about 
why, like obviously why, because shape, you know, but all the other bits that kind of play into it. So it is, it's not like black and white. It is quite nuanced. But so that's my little synopsis of Southern Rangelands. Yeah, now I mean, let's have someone who actually lives in the Southern Rangelands tell. Oh, I mean, uh, I mean, that's the whole cultural aspect. You know, that history is, is just so important. Um, you know, it was, people say, oh, you know, how hard, hard it was. And it certainly was hard, but fortune favored the brave and it was pretty hard in the depression for everybody. You know, it, it doesn't matter whether you lived out here or in the city. Like it was, it was pretty hard everywhere. In fact, it would have been a lot harder in the city. Um, than it was out here, but sort of fortune favoured the brave. Like they, you know, it was it was pretty hard for a few years, um, and certainly if you got sick, it would be really hard, or you, you know, you could easily die, um, uh, which is definitely pretty hard. Um, <laughs> but they made a they made a fair bit. They also made a fair bit of money pretty pretty early, pretty quickly. Um, certainly in this area. Um, so that was going in their favour, um, but I was just thinking when you're saying then, like, uh, like uh, you know, it's, it's not so simple as just to say, oh, you know, sh- sheep have flogged the, the southern rangelands. Like they were being, they were, the pastors were being lauded for that. Nobody was saying you're doing the wrong thing at that time, and they're making a heap of money. And as they say, you know, sh- you know, Australia rode in the sheep's back, like. The, the average building in your in the in the in the uh, main street of a little town or in Perth that's got you know 1901 written on it. Chances are you know it was built with money that came from wool. Like it built the nation that money, but it didn't come for free. Like you know the other side of that was that we we did end up with it with a degraded landscape, um, which is something that I think we have to fix so that we can, you know, continue to use it as a resource in the future. When did people start to realise the damage that was being done? Because say, so I'm not familiar with this country, say, and if I say took over Walleen today or any of your neighbours and started running, obviously, luckily I can tap into 200 years odd of experience that's been captured or 100 whatever, but let's say I don't. I would probably be in the same boat as the people that came out and settled then. Like you're learning about the species and their role in the ecosystem and their whether or not the cows or sheep want to eat them. And you're kind of learning everything from scratch and, and you've got to go through a few seasons to see, yeah, how does, how does the seasons work? How does water work? And this, you know, how does this whole thing work? Cause it's nothing like England, Scotland, Ireland, wherever people came from. When though do you think people started to realize like, Oh crap, we're actually you know, not only doing bad, like it's not like a bad year, but we're kind of done a fair bit of damage and it's going to take time to repair. I mean, who knows? And I think it would, it, like it would, uh, there'd be a slight, there'd be a scale all the way through. Like some people probably would have recognised very early on and and some, I would argue, still don't <laughs> recognise that there's issues. But certainly, um, like if you're looking back through the history of it, the, the 1941 Royal Commission into the lost economic potential of the, Gascoigne Murchison region would be that's a big one because um, um, and it's a big one not necessarily because that's when they first um, realised but it but it's definitely the best documented being a royal commission so um, so yeah that would definitely be what was the outcome like when you say royal commission I think like I know in recent years there's been one into like banks and 
aged care. I didn't realize we had them back in the forties. Like I guess they've been going around for a while. Yeah, um, they're old. What What was the takeaway message of what they found for this region? Well, they estimated that about seventy five percent of the saltbush bluebush country, which is just sort of high productivity country, had been wiped out by that time, and about twenty five percent of the mulga country, um, which is just sort of medium productivity country, had also been wiped out. Um, which yeah, which is a lot more. The mul- there's a lot more mulga country than there is saltbush bluebush country, um, and they actually the recommendation, the major recommendation was that they that the pastures got low interest loans so that they could restock quickly, <laughs> uh, which in my opinion would have been a complete disaster and made the problem a lot worse. So they're saying you've you've damaged the country, but we want to make it affordable for you to put more animals on the place. Yeah, and and so I guess they 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 realised that the that their pasture was a very low ebb. What they didn't realise is how how slow growing a lot of those plants were that they'd taken out, and how hard it was going to be to get them back. Um, they didn't they didn't get the money, or probably the reason that they didn't get the money for providing those loans, just loans, is because the second world war started not long after that, and so they didn't have have enough money to uh, to give to pastures to buy more stock. Can you run us through some of the major players in terms of species out here? Like I know there's, I mean, I don't know if you've got a hundred species on the place or fifty. Like there's, I know there's a lot, mm. but maybe some of the major players that are really important and that can tell you about what's going on in the landscape and what are uh, of what we consider of value for livestock. Crikey, how much time are you have? <laughs> well, that's why I'm saying the major players, so maybe like the top five or six. You know, oh, like- we're just talking about families, so. <laughs> Um, so the, so the, the, the saltbush bluebush species are generally regarded as being the productive ones from here. Like they're, they're the, they're the shrubs that make this, the sort of the, uh, the, the productive shrublands, I guess. So they, um, so you mean like their animals like to eat them and they yep. gain weight from them? Yep. Yep. The bluebush family in particular are, are very, or can be very long lived. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different sorts of bluebush and some of them are short lived and some of them are very long lived. Um, and those long-lived ones, the long-lived palatable ones are usually the ones that are most important when it comes to providing a drought reserve for things for your animals to eat for, from a pastoral perspective. Um, but they're also very important, um, in holding the soil together, um, because, you know, they, 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 they'll survive through the harshest drought so long as you don't flog the crap out of them, uh, which is what they did in the, in those, uh, 1930s droughts. Um, so how old are like the ones we drove well, we past know. yesterday? We, we don't know, but but the ones that we drove past yesterday w- almost certainly were alive when sheep first got here 130 years ago, um, and there hasn't been a new generation of those plants since, um, which is part of the reason that we know that they were that they were. Um, that they were, they were around then. And that's, that's true for a lot of trees, like things like gum trees in the river. You know, there's really big old gum trees, but then there's no new generation, um, through till sort of 2006. Sort of. It's almost like you need to go put little tags in them and write like 2021, like that this was existed here. So then in a hundred years, they can come back and like something will still be grazing that same plant. And they'd be like, Oh, that plant was definitely here. Cause I think if you're somebody that lives on a place, uh, and you've been there for generations, like you can kind of, you get to know your country, you can keep an eye on things like that. But if you're, say, changing managers or owners every couple of years, like. But it's not only that. I mean, so the, the, uh, there's a thing called the shifting baseline syndrome. 
um, because the landscape changes so slowly out here, you know, no, no pastors have grown up seeing how good it was before the 1930s drought. So everybody just assumes that it, what it is now is what it has always been. Um, but, you know, a fairly rudimentary look at the, you know, early explorers accounts and all those sorts of things would show that that wasn't the case. And the fact that the landscape is uh, degrading at a rate now, um, which it couldn't possibly have sustained before, um, shows you that there were a lot more plants in the landscape. But everybody's got used to it now and everybody grew up with it. And that's as long, that's as far back, you know, even if their family has been there, you know, multiple generations, um, nobody can remember it being, or maybe they can remember it or they, they've heard, but they've never seen it. So, um, so they just assume that what we've got now is, is normal. Okay. So we've done blue bush and salt bush. Just briefly, like, what are the other major players out here and what have the changes been in their, uh, I suppose, existence or, yeah. Mm, yeah, so a lot of those saltbush bluebushes have been, you know, really pegged back and possibly some of them disappeared altogether. Some of them are very sparse, like you can only find a few paddocks, a few few plants in, in a couple of paddocks, whereas, you you know, they used to be all over the place. Um, you know, there's all the acacias, which are generally pretty robust and not that palatable. So most of them are still around. Is that your mulgas? Yeah, like mulga, for example. Um, but mulgas... Like a very, it's, it's a long-lived species as well, and and people look out and they see hippomolga trees and they're like, wow, well, you know, things still look reasonably good. There's still plenty of trees, but those trees, a bit like the gum trees, they were they were big trees when the sheep got here 130 years ago. And what you really need to look for is whether there are new generations of mulga tree coming through, because um, if there isn't, and quite often there isn't out here. Um, you know, once those older trees die, which admittedly will take another 50 years uh, or more, um, there won't be any trees without those new generations coming through. So these plants are like the equivalent of like some turtles and dinosaurs, like, you know, when you see – not dinosaurs, sorry, um, crocodiles, basically a dinosaur. You know, and they're like, oh, this crocodile or this alligator is like – we see a turtle and they're like, this is a 100-year-old turtle. Like that's what these plants are like. Well, you might not. You might look at them and not older. think. Yeah. yeah. So you might look at the turtle and be like, "Oh, that's a turtle," and they're like, "No, that's like a hundred and something years old." Well, trapdoor spiders can be fifty years old. I'm so glad you shared that <laughs> with that, me. Do we have those on Waleen? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, they're fantastic. <laughs> it's not that one. Okay. Small. Well, somebody told me a. a, a um, oh, I can't remember. One of the the little kids from Kadari was telling me those. Um, what do you call them? Not not jokes, but uh, riddles the other day, and the answer was a trapdoor spider, but I can't remember the question, but that's the punchline. <laughs> so it's good to know that they're actually real spiders. I'm not very good at riddles, so from now on, I'm just going to, when someone starts off with a riddle, I'm just going to be like, trapdoor spider, <laughs> and eventually I might get it right. You might get it right. Okay, so coming back to this idea of wanting to do things differently, where, so was it, did, did is what you're doing now similar to what Bob Purvis did, or was that just the was that just a, a sort of in general saying things can be done differently? But are you again doing them differently to how he's done them? Yeah, no, yeah, we we I mean, yeah, we're we're definitely doing them quite a bit differently. I, I think Bob did destock for a short period of time very early on, but um, he's he's kept cattle pretty much all the way through. Um, 
and of the greatest respect for him for that. And, and a few other people I know have, have done sort of similar things, maybe not got the results that Bob has, but um, fixing the country while, you, while you're still making most of your money out of cattle is, is a much harder proposition, like a much harder proposition than, in my, in my opinion, um, than um, essentially concentrating somewhere else while your landscape um, recovers. Um, I suppose we should tell people, I've just said, you know, you've been doing things differently, but we haven't explicitly said what your management decision was and what you are doing differently. So maybe yeah. run us through, okay, so you get handed Woleen or you, you actually had to put a proposal to your father to say this would, this is how I would manage it. Mm. Um, what, what was the plan? Um, so the plan was to destock for as long as possible. Uh, you know, destocking is not new. People have destocked before, um, but usually they don't do it for a particularly long period of time. And I think that it's only in the latter years the destocking that destocking actually becomes a, a, a financially worthwhile thing to do because for the plants that we want to get back into the landscape and they you know, the, the epitome of those is the palatable perennial grasses. Um, you know, there, there, there might be only one seed. In, in, on the whole property, essentially, or, you know, let's say one seed in 10,000 hectares. So you, 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 if you destock, um, and you get a growing season, which you don't guarantee to get in any year out here. Um, but if you destock and you get a growing season, that, that, that one seed's going to germinate and come out and throw out a hundred seeds. And so, you know, next growing season and next year, you've got, a uh, hundred seeds, and they come up, and they throw out a hundred seeds, and you've got ten thousand seeds. Um, but that's still not enough to actually notice them in the landscape. And the next growing system, which which is almost guaranteed not to be the next year around here, you know, we 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 skip we skip years for for growing season. But the next growing season, uh, you know, you've got ten thousand plants come out and throw out a hundred seeds. So that exponentiality is what makes the destocking worthwhile in the latter years. In my opinion, in the, in the, in the, in the first few years, like for a couple of years, destocking doesn't make that much difference, in my opinion. So we wanted to destock for as long as we possibly could. And then we were just going to run cows enough to pay, um, uh, pay, pay the bills, pay, get us back on track, I guess, financially. Um, and then we're going to destock some more. So that's, that's for two reasons. One, because we needed the cows to, make enough money to survive and you know we overshot that we we nearly went broke um but that was always the the plan well no going broke wasn't always the plan but um (laughs) great plan yeah um it was always the plan to push it as as close as we could to try and get that exponential exponentiality of the of the pasture recovery but then um then we'd run as many cows as we needed to, to 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 stay afloat um also considering we also had the tourism business, that's what we focused our attention on, try and make as much money, or not just tourism, try and make as much money out of contracting whatever we could possibly do to make money. Um, and, we, and, then, and then we'd only run cattle to try and make up the shortfall every few years. Um, and that was also, like, I, I don't think that set stocking is a good, is a good grazing strategy. Um, and I think that's been a big part of the problem. Uh, out here in terms of, you know, why the landscape is degraded as, as it has. So I think, um, 
installing some sort of some form of rotational grazing is essential. So that trading cattle, you know, bringing them in for however long and then selling them all again, you know, that is a rudimentary um, rotational grazing system. So that was that was also the beginning. It was it was it was to pay for the shortfall, but it was also to try and begin um, forming a rotational grazing system. So when you say destocking for an extended period of time, how long are we actually talking here? Like one year, two years, five years? Well, the first period of destocking was four years, and then I think we had about a year stocked, and then. Was that the plan or did you have to bring them? Was that when you said you had to bring them back yeah, we, to make money? We had to bring them back at that point and we overshot a bit. Like we, we very nearly went broke. Um, you know, the, the, uh, from the, bringing them back or not bringing them back, you mean? Well, we brought them back too late. Yeah. So we didn't make the money early enough. Yeah. Um, and it also didn't help that we were banking with ANZ and with all the. Oh, was all, this around that time? Yeah. And oh. so they. So they, they said, oh, you know, it would be a really good idea to reduce your loan amount to this amount. And we're like, well, we'll need that money to buy, to buy cows. And then, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And then, and then we got to that point. We're like, right, we need to buy cows. We need to, you know, increase our loan. And they're like, no, you can't do that. I'm like, well, hang on a second. You know, our bank manager's, oh, that bank manager's gone. So yeah, I'm working on an episode. (laughs) Uh, so anyone that, yeah, ANZ saga of. Yeah, so that, that wasn't very really helpful. But, but then, then we couldn't afford to buy cows. So, you know, like, it's like took a long time to actually, uh, find somewhere that we could borrow money. Not a fan's there. They wouldn't, they didn't lend us the money, um, to actually buy some cows so that we could. And that, that probably that, that gap was, was, was maybe the difference between us, you know, getting in and us not getting in. Anyway, so the, uh, you know, that ANZ said we, we, we want the money by Friday. And it was like Monday and we didn't have the money. <laughs> yeah. I've spoken to a few other people in the last two weeks that, that had that experience, like mm. wanted the whole loan paid. Anyway, that's a whole going to be a whole other episode in itself because mm. wild, wild times. Um, if you could have, if you didn't, if, if you like could have destocked and how long would you ideally, if money wasn't an issue, stay destocked for? Mm, that's an interesting question because um, there's two answers to that. There's one for the landscape. You know, what does the landscape need? And the landscape needs is well, I don't know how much lands how much how much destocking the landscape needs. In the latter years, you're going to get that exponential production. So, so the longer you leave it, the the, the better it's going to be up until a point where it reaches a balance. And then, or it begins to reach a balance in, in which point, you know, you're probably not getting those gains. Um, but it's certainly longer than the 14 years that we've been here. Yeah. So, but the other side of that is, um, you know, even if we, even if we had heaps of money, I'd still run some cows, even though in my opinion, it's not going to do the landscape any favors because it's important that we, I mean, this is not why we did it. We did it because we had to run cows in order to make, make enough money. But um, we have to stay relevant with the pastoral industry if we're going to have any impact on it. So, so I think that um, uh, pastoralism, um, well, not just pastoralism, agriculture in general, and in fact society in general, we, we look we look very different 
at the areas that we have for production compared to the areas that we have for conservation. You know, we're happy for conservation to happen over here and for production to happen over there. Um, and I think that that dichotomous way of looking at it is a really big problem because, um, because the production areas will fail if we don't incorporate quite a bit of conservation in there. But also the conservation areas will, will fail if we don't, um, incorporate a bit of production because you can't just have these islands of conservation pretending that the production system around them doesn't affect them now and won't affect them into the future. Um, for example, if we, you know, if we took it to the nth degree and said, look, we're just going to lock up all these areas for conservation, but we're not going to do, we're not going to change the way we produce. Eventually, foods, you know, food security is going to become a really big issue. And let's say, you know, we've locked up, let's say we've locked the whole past, like, let's say we've locked the whole of the southern rangelands up for, you know, 50 years or something. So taking every cow, every sheep off, every goat. Yeah. And just said, this is, we're locking it up and leaving it. Um, eventually we're going to get to a point, if we don't, if we don't change those production systems in other areas, eventually we're going to get to the point where those production systems are failing because we haven't incorporated enough conservation into them. But we're going to have the southern rangelands and then we're going to go, you know, we're really hungry. You know, where are we going to get food? Hang on a second. They used to run a heap of cows in the southern rangelands. Let's run our cows there. You know, we, we have to, we don't have any, we don't have any choice because we, we, you know, we're not, we haven't incorporated conservation into our production systems elsewhere. So we're going to have to use that resource to produce food, which, you know, and we'll, we'll just, we'll, you know, the, 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 the cattle or whatever, whatever, whatever animal is, we'll be back. Like I don't, I don't, I don't foresee a, 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 a circumstance in the future where we don't use this land for producing Food and in particular, you know, meat, because I think that's, that's, uh, that will be the most, uh, you know, the most responsible use of this, of this land, giving all the factors that we'll, you know, need to take into account. So I, uh, so I wouldn't just, you know, lock it, lean up for the amount of time that it needed in inverted commas. You know, how you would judge that would be a different, you know, that's a different, that's a different issue. Um, because it is important that we, as much as possible, stay relevant with the pastoral industry so that we can, uh, I, I guess we just sort of see as, ourselves as a bit of a, as a bit of a bridge in between production and conservation. And it's not like most pastoralists aren't trying to incorporate conservation into their properties you know and they do incorporate it to the degree that they understand how their land systems work and what their pasture is and all those sorts of things um i, I would just i would just say that we're, we're probably drawing the line a lot closer to conservation because i think that that is what is needed um yeah i've forgotten what the question was no no i, I was asking like you know if you could lock up you know lock or destock oh, yeah. for any point in time but you know so you've answered that that quite well and that I guess the answer is it really depends on your circumstances and the condition of the country and and that you wouldn't just, you know, take cows off for the next 20 years. You, you've said you would keep some amount of cows here, again, like to stay relevant. What are some of the other things you've done uh, on Waleen? So aside from destocking, and that um, is to, to so reduce the grazing pressure and allow um, – the plants to regenerate and the land, like in that 
um, thing. What's one of the other things you've done? Yeah, so um, so that's the thing that's done in terms of recovering the landscape. Destocking is what is what does that. Um, introducing a rotational grazing system is really um, really important. Um, I think set stocking is just because under set stocking, the animals just go out, they just find their favourite plants, and they eat them till they're all gone. And then they find their second favourite plant, and they eat that till it's all gone. And they find their third favourite plant, and, and you know, after 130 years of that. You know, we've got really ice cream and chocolate bushes and we're kind of down to the Brussels sprouts bushes, uh, which are nowhere near as productive. So we need to, we need to switch from shed stocking to rotational grazing. So, so there's a recovering the country and then there's learning to manage it afterwards, which is what the rotational grazing, some form of rotational grazing is. Um, our biggest problem with, um, introducing a rotational grazing system out here has been, um, the unmanaged grazers, the goats and the kangaroos, which traditionally have been have accounted for about sixty percent of the grazing pressure, so 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 you can't. You, there's no point in in in, in rotationally grazing your forty percent that you can manage if sixty percent is unmanaged because they're going to continue to graze out the best species, and the best species are the palatable perennial grasses. What does perennial mean? It lives for more than a year. Okay, so yep. some so plants an- only live for a year annuals. and others live longer. Annuals live for up to a year. Perennials live for, you know, more than a year through to, I mean, I guess quite often semi-perennials are sort of two or three years and then probably more than three years it's going to be a perennial right up to, I read the other day that there's a tree that's 4,000 years old or something. Anyway, it's a perennial. So would you say like wheat and barley, things people are growing as crops, you see them, they plant them, they're green, and then they kind of yep. uh, set seed. So that's that's their cycle of life, whereas a perennial, well, that's not going to happen in a year. Like they live for several years. Yeah, yep. Um, so those palatable perennial grasses are really important and they are the limiting factor in our in our um the, the production animals diet because they produce, they, they provide energy. Um, and our, our landscape's pretty low in energy. We've got a lot of protein, which is the other thing they need. They need, they need protein and energy. You know, they're the two main things. They need a whole bunch of other things in, in small amounts, but they need protein and energy. We've got heaps of protein here, which is all your shrubs and your saltbushes and bluebushes and, you know, cases and things. Um, but energy is very limited, especially you know, during dry seasons. Um, and so the palatable perennial grasses have really been hammered at that time because they're a limiting factor to the point where, um, you know, l- lots of pastoralists, including myself 20 years ago, um, would have said, well, we don't have palatable perennial grasses here. We just, we just don't have them. Um, but we should have them and they're really important for pastoralism. So, um, getting those plants back into the landscape is uh, is really important. Um, so how do you do that if they're not here? Yeah. So 14 years of, of, of destocking in some – or, in fact, 16 years destocking in some, some paddocks um, will tell us that some of those species that we know used to grow here will come back, but some of them haven't come back. Like when we're talking like not a single plant over the whole property has come back of that particular species. Because we know they used to grow here, but we've grazed them to the point where there's no longer even a seed bank uh, left in the landscape, and some of them have short-lived seeds. So, you know, they they uh, 
they're prone to 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 losing their seed bank. So we've got a little couple little nurseries um, where we're well now, and it would have been great if I'd started this 14 years ago because we sort of lost 14 years worth of time. Anyway, we, we're we're growing these nurseries so that we're growing them in nurseries, like irrigating them, flood irrigating them, just to produce as many of their seeds as we possibly can. To try and get them back into into the landscape, and then once we do get them back in the landscape, which is probably be a long time in the future, you know that rotational grazing is going to be really important to make sure that they that they that they persist in the, in the, in those places. Because if we if we go back to set stocking, then once again they'll just they'll just graze them all out again. And you don't need very many animals in the paddock if they're set stock, because they will find their favourite plants. Like they will deliberately go out. And they'll ignore all the other stuff just so they can eat their favourite plants. So pick the red and orange lot like snakes out of the pack and leave the yellow and green ones behind. <laughs> Nobody wants the green lolly. Really? Oh. Ew. No, red and orange all the way. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Can yeah. you describe your nursery? Because when you say you've got a, a plant nursery, I'm thinking, you know, where you go to buy like your pot plants and stuff and then they're growing or you've got those little tiny punnets, and, but they're all in like a, a glass house. Yeah, it's like uh, that. Well, but it is, but it's not. You've <laughs> no, got a very not. different setup out here and it's way, it's not even at the homestead, like it's way out yonder. Well, it's specifically way out yonder because that's, uh, it's in the Murchison River um, and it's in the, um, it's in the, where the river first comes into Woolene, which is good because we want to grow them there so that they propagate all the way through the Murchison River, you know, downstream into Woolene. Um, but yet there's a semi-permanent pool there, which is a, which is a problem when it comes to trying to manage grazing pressure because that's an unmanaged watering point for the animals. So we pump that's, so it's a bit of a pain. It's a negative, really. It looks lovely though. Um, so we pump that out. Onto the grasses, so we're getting rid of the negative of the unmanaged grazing, uh, unmanaged watering point, anyway. Um, but we're also getting the positive of getting the grasses growing in the little nursery. So we started that I don't know three years ago or something, not knowing whether any of these grasses that we're trying to get w- would grow there. And oh. they, they are they're going ballistic, so although they're very slow to get established, but they're going mad now. So that's good. It's a pretty cool little area. It's, um, it's so, you've built it specific, like so much like protection that, you know, so that kangaroos or whatever else can't get in there. Like you've got like this mesh fence to the point where you don't even have a gate to get in and out. You've built steps to go up and over the fence so that I'm there, is guess- a, there is a gate. In the oh, is there? What well, why did we climb over the fence yesterday? It's a pain to open. So oh. I, I was like, wow, he must have built no gate so that there was no chance that somebody, you know, that the gate might, you know, come open or somebody might forget to close the gate and that something's going to get in there and eat all your hard work. You have to I chop, assume chop that, her in there. I assume that's why he made me climb over the fence to get in. The, and it's like a little permanent set of stairs so you can climb up and oh, over the fence. Got them cheap in an auction. Cost me nothing. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> we should talk about that later. Dave and his auctions. Okay. Well, you do have a, a gate. Obviously, I haven't read that part of the book yet, <laughs> <laughs> but you've got, you've got these different species and, 
like you said, you flood irrigating. So you've just, it's basically like having a giant hose running from that water hole and you'll run it for periods of time. So it's kind of just like forgetting to turn the hose off. Like, and that, you know, and then you come yeah, out into the garden and there's just like water everywhere. It's a strange pump. But I mean, the pool's nearly empty. I mean, it gets, it, it gets very dry in there mm. when, because once the pool's empty, then there's Yeah, no it's not like water. you're growing rice. It's not like flooded no, all the time. Yeah. But, uh, and, and you know, it can be really hot and really dry all summer. And and those grasses, they're they're fine with that. They'll they're not going to die because of that. Um, you know, they they are accustomed to, to living here. Um, but having said that, it's not a natural circumstance. We are putting on as much water as we as we can. But yeah, that's that's my happy place at the moment. Say grass nursery. Nursery is an appropriate name as well because these are like your babies. Um, mm. Yesterday, I almost stepped on you one of your babies, and you were one. very quick to be. <laughs> And then I proceeded to walk around on tippy toes. Uh, so what, what is the most exciting thing you've seen in that nursery? What are you most pleased about that's grown? Uh huh. I don't think that would be a hard question because you were so proud of two of the plants in there yesterday. Well, it's, it's trying to pick a favorite. They're all like, who's they're your all... favorite child? I uh, love them all equally. No, is the right answer. <laughs> they're, uh, no, they're all a highlight. Like all the one, well, I mean, all the ones that I'm trying to grow there. The fact that they are growing there is, is, um, is the highlight, I guess. Although maybe the highlight is, uh, uh, having read, um, oh no, what's, this, what's her name? Uh, lady wrote a book about soil. She's from New oh, Zealand. Oh, for the love of soil. Yeah, Nicole yeah. Masters. And I and haven't I, read it, but I've heard it enough times. I read that, and I was like. Maybe not. Well, I am growing grass, but I'm like maybe, maybe, maybe grass is not what I is not the main thing that I'm growing here. Maybe what I'm growing is healthy soil. Um, I mean, Francis is quite um, uh, is quite into. She bought a heap of Nutrisoil to uh, to spread around the place, so we put a bit of that in it. And I'm like, maybe, maybe, maybe that's the highlight. Maybe the highlight is uh, is 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 all those amazing things in the soil that I'll never get my head around. Uh, you know, providing a little safe bastion for them to repopulate when uh, floods come through. Maybe that, who knows, is is the highlight. It's nice to think though. It might not be the grasses. That was part one of our chat with David. Now we've released part two at the same time so you don't have to wait. Make sure you go and check it out, especially if you want to hear David's thoughts on wild dogs. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station, and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations. And we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au. And we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.